Welcome to another episode of Strange Old World, where we delve into an ancient city to discover its fun little foibles. I'm Joe, and every fortnight I'm talking to an expert in an old world city who shares a few of their favourite hometown quirks. I'll ask them for one strange thing to see, one strange thing to do, one strange festival or event, one strange food or drink, and more. This episode we're talking about Istanbul. Settled as far back as the 6th millennium BCE, it's been a proper city, first Byzantium, then Constantinople, now Istanbul, since about 660 BCE, which is technically ages. To help me delve into Istanbul's weirder nooks and crannies, I talked to Pat Yale, a British travel writer who lives in the city. As you'll hear, Pat has written a host of guidebooks on the country, and she now has her own travel book out, Following Miss Bell. We talk about it in the interview, so I won't bang on about it now. But just to say, it's great. If you'd like to pick up a copy, maybe as a Christmas gift, there are links in the description. So, in this episode, you'll be introduced to all kinds of Istanbul oddities. From men simulating self-flagellation, to spit-roasted sheep intestines. Mm. You'll find all of our picks on our website, strangeoldworld.com, and keep listening to the end to hear my favourite strange thing in Istanbul. Right then, off we go. Welcome to the podcast, Pat Yale, British travel writer who's been covering Turkey for more than three decades. You've worked on several editions of the Lonely Planet Turkey Guidebook, among others, and have travelled all over the country to uh, all 81 provinces, I believe. Is that right? That is right. I don't know how you know that, Joe, but yes, it is true. (laughs) I have been to all the 81 provinces. That's amazing. So um, what's your connection to Turkey? When did you first visit? I first came here in 1974, so really, really, really a long time ago. And I was straight out of school with my boyfriend in a van. We were tail-end hippies and we got to Istanbul. And my feeling is that it was the first place I'd ever been that was not European culture. And I think that can make an enormous impression on you, even if you don't truly understand that at the time, because I don't think I did understand that. But my feeling is that it did make an incredible impact on me, and obviously in a positive sense, although the the first visit was actually quite hairy. In what way? Well, I I was held up at gunpoint twice in two weeks. Oh, my God. But obviously there was enough of something that I could relate to and that I found absorbing and interesting and fascinating. But, you know, I've ended up living in Turkey. So... And and the interesting thing is, as you will probably talk about in a bit, I, you know, I've been writing a book about Gertrude Bell, and she also came to Istanbul, which was then Constantinople, aged 20, so about the same age as me. I sort of feel like, because I see how my first visit to Istanbul probably formed the whole of the rest of my travelling life, I suspect that's probably also true of Gertrude because I suspect, you know, she also will have come to this place and it will have had even more striking an impact on her because, you know, obviously in the late 19th century, there was no very little information available. If I was startled, it's hard to imagine how it must have been for her. So I sort of feel like we were both probably formed by our first visits to Istanbul. I was going to ask you about the book. So this is Following Miss Bell, and you trace the journey through Turkey of Gertrude Bell, who was a late 19th, 20th century, early 20th century British diarist, explorer and kind of influential political figure, ultimately, in the Middle East. Yes. And I was going to ask about parallels because 
you know, adventurous British woman who came to Turkey young and uh, ended up dedicating your lives to exploring the region. I don't know how far the parallels go. I mean, I assume you weren't presented to the Queen at a coming out ball at any point. <laughs> well, it's very surprising you should mention that, but no, no, I wasn't. I mean, obviously the parallels can only go to a certain extent and Gertrude was a much more brilliant woman than me. You know, she spoke multiple languages. She was a mountaineer. She was in every way more accomplished than me. But I do think that there are enough parallels that for me, when I was retracing her travels, you know, I, I was conscious of those parallels in, in our lives. What I found really interesting, how you structure the book, that you have different chapters on different trips she took or, or areas that she visited. One thing that, that I really enjoyed was that uh, you were searching for a farmhouse outside Bulgorka. Is that how you pronounce it? Bulgorka? Bornova, yes. Outside of Bornova, yes. Ah, okay. Completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> and then you discover it's at the bottom of a reservoir. We think so. I mean, not 100% for sure, but we think so. We think it was at the bottom of um, a reservoir. And it was rather sad because the people who took me to look for it, along with what we think was the farmhouse, was also their village. So it had been drowned. Mm-hmm. So obviously now you've been working for a long time as a travel writer. How did you get into that? Did you study journalism? Did you have any previous jobs that... that... No, I came from... After university, I I became a travel agent, actually. So I was in the formal tourism industry selling holidays to people in High Street, Kensington. It was very poorly paid. And the only way to get more money was to go into management. And I'm not a management type. So I got stuck, basically. Mm -hmm. And I decided the best thing to do was to have a complete break so I left I was by then working for American Express Travel I quit and I traveled across Africa from Alexandria to Great Zimbabwe on my own wow and when was this that was in 1984 Mm -hmm. and then when I came back I did an online writing course and started submitting articles I think I mean the first thing I got published in the Guardian was about working on a kibbutz and making 600 eggs for breakfast and then gradually just built up. And eventually what actually happened was, I mean, you, it, there's always an element of luck as far as I can see in this. I was writing for Venue, which was the Bristol and Bath listings magazine, and Lonely Planet, which had until then always concentrated on Asia, Africa, South America, decided to move into Europe. And Tony and Maureen Wheeler, who set up Lonely Planet, came on a tour of the UK to promote that. And they approached Venue for me to interview them. So I got to meet them personally. And at the very end of the interview, they said, well, what do you think about the books? And I said, well, they're wonderful. The only problem I have as a woman is I'm a little bit tired of a standard paragraph in the front that virtually says, women, you will be harassed when what you need is women travel writers. And basically, they just said, well, apply, you know, apply to us. And I got put on a panel for when a job came up. And the job that came up was Turkey. So Turkey was the first guidebook you wrote for them? Yes, that was Turkey of 1992, I think. And it was very different. For example, that the military controlled all the maps. So when you got to the southeast of Turkey, you'd have to ask someone to draw you a sketch map of where the mosque might be or so on, because it wasn't possible to buy a published map. That seems inconceivable now. Um, at some point, obviously, we quietly just dropped that. And we now have Google Maps like everybody else. But I don't remember that there was ever an announcement that we were dropping the military control of the maps, but obviously we did. You've obviously lived in a few different places in Turkey. 
you had a long stint in Gorame. Is that, I mean, my pronunciation, I have no idea what I'm, what I'm doing with Turkish. Fair enough. Why would you? Uh, <laughs> yes, Gorame is, is the sort of tourist heart of Cappadocia, which is the middle of the country. And people usually know it from the pictures of masses of hot air balloons over a crazy rock landscape. But when I moved there in 1998, it was basically an Anatolian village with tourism. So I had a cave house. I bought a ruined cave house and had it restored um, and lived in that. So from there, you moved to Istanbul. What is it you love about Istanbul? Why did you make that your home? Well, it's just such a vibrant city. And the Bosphorus is runs through the centre of Istanbul. And it is just never endingly beautiful. So I mean, are you having a bad day? Um, All you need to do is go and take a ferry ride across the Bosphorus to the other side. And I defy anyone not to be cheered up by the sight of the Bosphorus, by the seagulls following behind, by the possibility that you might see the dolphins, you know, by the skies above the Bosphorus. Um, You know, I have a fairly romantic view of Istanbul. A lot of Turks will speak very differently of it. Um, But yes, for me, I mean, given the nature of your podcast, the, the, the curious thing for me is that I struggled a bit sometimes to think of strange things, specifically strange things about Istanbul. But everyday life in Istanbul is pretty strange. I mean, you live with something weird is likely to happen almost any day. You know, I live very near um, Istiklal Jardisi, which is a pedestrianised road, um, which is always busy at all times of day. And you cannot walk along that street and there won't be something strange happens, you know, just in random everyday life in a way that, just isn't the case if you walk along Oxford Street, for example. But that's, to me, that's one of the joys of living in Istanbul. It's never boring because you never know what might be just around the corner. Now we get into the heart of things. I'm going to ask for your tips for some of the more unusual and offbeat things to experience in Istanbul. Can you start me off with a strange thing to see? A strange thing to see. Well, there are in Istanbul four open-air reservoirs, I suppose, dating back to Byzantine times. And they're very large, almost like pits in the ground, rimmed with Byzantine walling. And at least one of them is regularly used as a football stadium. So you're looking down on this thing and people are playing football in there. And I doubt whether the team themselves would realise that they're actually playing football in a Byzantine historic monument, which was part of a very, very complex system that brought water from Thrace, which is the countryside adjacent to Istanbul, into the city. And mostly it was stored underground in systems that are open to the public now. But some of it was stored in these open air reservoirs, perhaps for watering plants and things like that, watering vegetables. So I think that's a very strange thing. And I always love looking down on it and and sort of laughing to myself at the thought that they probably don't realise mm. all the history. Absolutely. So so are some of these possible to visit? Oh, you can visit any of them. It's just a question of knowing where they are. They're not closed. One of them is on the outskirts of town, and it's called the Field Arm, which means the elephant reservoir, because it's particularly big. And that also has a sports field in the centre and a running track around the edge. So it's only a question of finding how to get there. Um, they're perfectly accessible. Okay, and can you tell me a strange thing to do in Istanbul? Well, 
something that we call the first of the month church. It's really called St Mary's, but it's the first of the month church. Up until the First World War, it was a multicultural city. So there are many, many Christian churches, Armenian churches, and other traces of minority religions, most of which are usually locked up, to be honest. They're not readily accessible. So the first of the month church is only open on the first of the month. It's a Greek Orthodox church that is just off a very busy main road called Ataturk Boulevard that leads up to a fine aqueduct also left from the historic water system. And the church is just off on the left. But again, you, you would need to know, to be aware that it's there, you wouldn't see it immediately. But on the first of the month, you can't miss it because they set up a stall outside and people buy all sorts of talismans, um, including little miniature keys. That At first, I had no idea what these keys were for. But when you go inside, you find that people take the key and they go up to the icons and some of them have a hole cut in the glass and they circle the key in that hole and presumably pray for whatever it is that they that is worrying them at the time. And although it's mostly... Christians who do it. There are also a few Muslims who would go there as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's a it's a kind of a multi faith experience, or it can be a multi faith experience. It can be a multi. I mean, I mean, it is predominantly a Greek Orthodox thing, but I think it's become associated with good luck. You know, going somewhere to pray for good luck. Um, so some of the little amulets outside are of specific things like cars, if you, you know, things that you might want, or things that you might want to give thanks for, but. Personally, I like the key best. I have one on my key ring. That brings me on nicely to a strange festival or tradition uh, in Istanbul. Okay. Now, what I'm going to tell you about first, it, it is literally the strangest thing I've ever seen in Istanbul. <laughs> in Turkey, well, in the Islamic world, there's a day called Ashura. And technically, this is the 10th day of the month of Muharram, which is the first month in the Islamic calendar. On Ashura in Turkey, the majority Sunni population make a pudding that is nicknamed Noah's Ark pudding. And it's made from roughly 40 ingredients, the sort of thing you might have in your cupboard, all sorts of fruit and vegetables and so on. This year, for the first time, I had it made in a, an actual religious ritual and it was hot and it was delicious. However, Turkey does have a minority Shia population. And you probably do know about... If you were in Iran, for example, on this particular day, they remember the death of Hussein at the Battle of Karbala in the 7th century. And you possibly have seen pictures of people, men whipping themselves. Now, in Turkey, that used to happen in the 19th century near the Grand Bazaar, but it was banned under the Republic. About in 2010, I think, it was allowed to start happening again, but not people were not allowed to whip themselves. And it doesn't any longer happen in the centre of town. It happens in an outskirt place called Halkalu. And that is the weirdest, really the strangest thing I've ever seen in Turkey, because it's just so totally unlike anything I personally think of as Turkish. And so you see all the women are dressed in black chadors, and they simulate, the men simulate whipping themselves by just waving their arms over their backs. Um, they're not allowed to do that. Instead, there's a blood drive. So the Red Crescent has tents set up, so you can give blood instead of actually doing that. But then you just have this great crowd. I mean, you don't, apart from one or two very small sects, you don't see women wearing black chadors in Turkey. It's not a Turkish thing. But then suddenly you're in this very modern part of town and every woman is wearing a black chador 
and there are figures with their faces covered, which uh, just as you would see in Iran, and there are these men simulating whipping themselves, and there's a big film screen shows shows the Battle of Kabbalah being reenacted, almost like a Greek tragedy. When I went the first time in 2010, there were a series of little cribs set up, and when you looked into them, they looked like nativity cribs until you looked inside, and then there was Hussein's baby son in doll form, stabbed to death with blood all over him. So it was like the nativity part with blood. Now I think because I went this year, I think they've actually said, you can't do that, it's not good PR. So there was only one crib with a stabbed baby in it. Just the one. Just the one. Now, I, I, as I say, I don't honestly think many visitors to Turkey are going to go to Halkali and see this event, even if they knew the date it was on. But it is, without doubt, the strangest thing I've ever actually seen in Turkey. Um, a more normal strange thing that you see is during Ramadan when you're in Turkey, people will see what look like big top tents scattered around the city. If they went inside, they would find that these are what are called iftar chadurs, iftar tents, where at the end of the day, when people are breaking their fast, if they don't want to cook for themselves or they can't afford to, a public meal will be provided for them. And anyone is free to join. So, you know, I've sometimes gone and eaten in a chador with people. And I always think that's very nice. But I think if you're an outsider, you probably have no idea what that is or, or why it's there or why people are queuing mm -hmm. and probably feel a little bit nervous about going in. But that's what that's about. It will happen again, I think, in March. This, I think in March, 10th of March is the start of Ramadan and it will be a winter Ramadan. So those tents will be more obvious than they have been over the summer. OK, so let's move on to uh, a strange thing to eat or drink in Istanbul. Now, Istanbul is full of strange things to eat and drink. We have something called kokoreç, which is uh, sheep's intestines, and they're roasted on a vertical spit. So it always makes me think of pictures, medieval pictures of St. Erasmus having his intestines wound out on a windlass for his failure to stop being a Christian. I'm trying to picture the... <laughs> In my head, it's like the intestine is, is straightened out and the spit goes straight up. I'm sure that's not the case. It's like rolled around. No, and I think I, I've eaten it once and, and it is actually perfectly nice. It's it's just the thought of eating it is kind of off-putting really, mm -hmm. but it's very popular. There's also, um, if you've been out for a night on the tiles, the thing to do is to have a bowl of ishkembe chorbosa in the morning and that's a bowl of tripe soup. And this is supposed to be very good for hangovers. There's also another one called kelipacha soup, which is head and trotter soup. So it's made from sheep's head and trotters or paws. Uh -huh. I mean, I've now actually given up meat, so I can't any longer try any of these things. But these are, you know, these are common everyday weird foods that people are eating. Um, Istanbul also has some, I wouldn't say strange, but unusual things because Istanbul is a city of 16 million people, many of whom have origins in other parts of Turkey. So you can get most types of regional cuisine in Istanbul, if you know where to look. And there's one particular area, which is, used to be called the Women's Market. And there, there are people who come from Siirt in the east of Turkey. And they cook kebabs called burian kebabs that are cooked in a pit oven, which has to be fired up at dawn. And then a sheep is a sheep body is hung to simmer all day and then it can be served for lunch with flats of bread and that is actually from my not my meat eating days that is delicious that sounds really nice it is lovely and in that same area they sell something called perde pilav which is 
means veiled rice, which is um, a fez-shaped pastry case. And inside that pastry case is a, a risotto with shreds of chicken and tiny, tiny sultanas and almonds. And that's absolutely delicious as well. So they're not, those things are not strange, but they are unusual. You, you know, you need to, to go to specific places to find them. Are there any vegetarian, now you're not eating meat, are there any strange vegetarian or vegan options? Not that I'm aware of, really, to be honest. It's all about the odd parts of the animal. Yes, really. I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, to be a vegetarian or vegan in Turkey when I first went there was to be completely weird. Mm -hmm. But like everywhere else, increasingly there are vegetarian and vegan options. It's no longer seen as a strange, you know, Western idea. I can imagine that in Istanbul. Is that also the case when you go out to the countryside? I very much doubt it. Right, yeah. I mean, part of, <laughs> I was vegetarian before I went to Gareme. I gave up being vegetarian because I thought in Gareme, you know, if people served you meat, it was a special treat and it would be very rude to be not eating it. So I just accepted to go back to meat, eating meat. But now, I mean, I, th I suspect in the big towns outside Istanbul, you'd find something, but not in the villages. I remember travelling in Turkey... And there was definitely a sense of vegetarianism very often being a meat dish with some of the meat plucked out. <laughs> I think sometimes they didn't even, the chicken didn't count, so that, that stayed yes, in. That's still true. <laughs> People will still say, well, we've got chicken shish. And I'll be saying, no, no, chicken is a living creature. I'm not eating that. But to be fair, I still eat fish. So, you know. So next up, how about a strange myth or legend or slice of history uh, from Istanbul? Well, the one that I'm going to suggest, I mean, there's obviously lots of history in Turkey. Um, the thing I'm going to mention is a thing called the Kustasha, which is a, a Roman column, a slightly out of the way one. You have to go looking for it. And it has somehow been confused with a lost column that was called the Column of Venus. And it was supposed to have a statue of Venus and it was supposed to sway slightly if a virgin walked past. Now, somehow that idea has become attached to this kustasha, which just means woman's stone. That column is not far from the women's market where you can buy the burian kebab and the perde pilaf, and it's also not that far from the first of the month church. So that's an area where there's a lot of things that are not obvious at first sight, but when you find them, are pretty interesting. Um, because you know, obviously, if you go to Sultan Ahmet, which is the heart of Istanbul's tourism industry, you know, everything is very obvious, the Hagia Sophia and the Blue Mosque and Top Kapi Palace, it's all in your face. But in this part of town, which is called Fati, which is spelled F-A-T-I-H and means the conquest and nothing worse, um, but that particular part of town is very historic, but its historic aspects tend to be concealed. Are there any customs of visitors to Istanbul that might be perceived as strange by the locals? Uh, blowing your nose in public is not a thing that you're supposed to do. That's common to the Middle East generally, I think. I think so, yes. But I think most Westerners are probably not very aware of it. Really. I mean, the, the problem with this is when someone's got a cold. So you sit in front of people in the bus who are just constantly sniffing because they won't get a handkerchief out and blow their nose. I find this very interesting because I, f I feel like this is a... It's not something people take on board in both directions. When I meet people from the Middle East who travel to Western Europe, for example, they very quickly learn not to, you know, when you clear your nose, I suppose, very vigorously or without a tissue or sniff or things like that, like very quickly, they will change that behavior. But like you say, most Westerners, in inverted commas, who go to the Middle East, 
they struggle to get on board with <laughs> with the sniffing and everything else and they still still um stick to blowing their nose well i think people just you don't even realize there's something to think about the thing for me is about you know living in a different country is you just discover that things that you thought were absolutes are in fact just cultural you know cultural things i was growing up thinking if you put a coat on your dog that was a very naff thing <laughs> to do in istanbul people would think well, why would you want your dog to be cold, for heaven's sake? You've got the dog. Of course you put a coat on it in winter when it's cold. So you sort of learn that it's just, there are no absolutes. It's just how people do different things. The other thing that I sort of, it took me quite a long time to realise was it's, you, you really shouldn't put your hand back on the floor if you're a woman. Not because anyone thinks it's going to be stolen, but because it might get dirty. So if you're in a restaurant, they will almost certainly bring a chair and place it beside you for your handbag. And there are even one or two restaurants now in Istanbul that have got little, almost like miniature hat stands that they can put beside your table so that you can hang your handbag up so it won't get dirty on the floor. Um, but it took me a while to realise that it wasn't just chance that these chairs would appear. It was absolutely routine. You know, the Turkish woman did not expect to put her handbag on the floor where it could get dirty. Can you give me a strange day trip from Istanbul? The only strange day trip I can think of is to see Hannibal's grave. Now, Hannibal is, was associated with the Punic Wars and Italy and the elephants and coming over the Alps with the elephants. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he died in Turkey. He ended up coming to Turkey and he died east of, Turkey, of, east of Istanbul and was, he killed himself apparently, and was buried there. But I, I, the fact that I know that and the fact that I've been to see his grave, I don't really think it's very helpful to anyone else because it's in the grounds of a research institute. And I really can't see that many people are going to either go to that research institute or these days with security be allowed to wander around the grounds. I mean, if we could expand it from day trip, is there anywhere um, elsewhere in Turkey that you would consider you know, a strange site or a strange activity? The whole of Gareme, where the whole of Cappadocia, where I lived, is strange in the sense that it's you know, this incredible landscape created by volcanoes and erosion, wind erosion, which has all been hollowed out over the ages so that people are living in it. There were churches inside them. Um, the little quirky things like a couple of police stations are within fairy chimney rock structures. Um, so in a sense, Cappadocia, where I used to live, was entirely weird. These so-called underground cities which in fact probably were not really cities so much as places of refuge when invaders had come. But, you know, whole layers deep under the ground. That was my home for 18 years, so it didn't feel strange at all. It felt routine. But if you look at it and you think back about it, of course this is not routine. This is very strange that your kitchen is in a cave and, you know, your bathroom is in a cave. And How far is this from Istanbul? It's a long way. Um, it's an hour and a half, I think, flying. It's right in the middle of the country. If you stuck a pin in the middle of Turkey, you'd find Cappadocia. So it's a very intense day trip. <laughs> flight in the morning, a, flight in the evening. Not a day trip at all. Although with Instagram, there are now people who will fly in in the afternoon, take a few pictures, go up in the balloon at dawn the next day and then leave. We've covered most of the, the strange things I wanted to talk about. So perhaps you can give me a few uh, straight up recommendations for Istanbul, some of the things you think people shouldn't miss. I mean, the, the straight up recommendations are very obvious, really. Hagia Sophia, Blue Mosque, Topkapi, the Grand Bazaar, the Spice Bazaar. Those are the straightforward things that you know everybody goes to. 
anyone who comes, I will say to them, these are the things you have to see on your first visit. Then on a second visit, we'll look at a few you know, other things that are not these great big flashy places. I did think that if, you, if you're going to the Grand Bazaar, for example, it can be overwhelming. Uh, and there is a, a woman called Monica Fritz who does very good guided tours of the bazaar that are not particularly commercial and will get you to corners that you perhaps wouldn't find for yourself. I've been with her and been surprised at how different the experience was from when I've gone on my own just to shop. I think that's a good way to, to be in the centre of the city, to be near all the historic things, but to be getting behind the scenes a bit and seeing slightly different things. Um, and I'm always going to recommend that people either go up the Bosphorus in a ferry or at least at the very least go across the Bosphorus in a ferry or go up the Golden Horn on a ferry. I think the experience of being in Istanbul on the water is just an unmissable thing at any time of year. Is there any reason people should visit Istanbul now? Are there any events happening at the moment or coming up soon? It's a good time to go because an awful lot of work has been done recently on the infrastructure. So we've got new trams, we've got a new funicular. Um, the Istanbul Modern Art Gallery, which had been closed for many years, has reopened and is in fine shape right by the water. Um, a new art gallery is opened in the Fez Hane, where fezes used to be made in, during Ottoman times. Fez is the hat, mm -hmm. sort of conical hats that men used to wear. Um, a lot of work has been done on restoring the walls recently, so they're looking in better shape. Actually, there are quite a lot of things that are looking at their best at the moment. Um, another good time to come will be September next year, 2024, for the Biennale. Even if you're not interested in art particularly, it doubles as being like an open doors event. So a lot of the events take place in buildings you can't normally go into, and some of those are very strange. So last year at the Biennale, they used a tunnel that was a, an access tunnel to the metro and someone had a light install, installation and there it was frankly absolutely terrifying um, and I noticed that after I'd been in it a notice went up sort of warning if you had a heart attack or if you had a heart condition or anything to be aware <laughs> that you know this was a place where sudden noises might happen um, but you never know until just before what's going to be used but they always use places that you can't otherwise go to so it's always a great experience even if you're not overly art-minded. Can you tell me the strangest sights you've seen anywhere else in the world? That is very easy. That's Palermo, the Capuchin catacombs, which are actually quite well known. So, I mean, it's a bit like the underground cities in Cappadocia. I don't know if you've been there. I haven't been, no. You go in there and these mummified bodies are standing upright along corridors and you just walk along and they're clothed and they're in differing degrees of mummification or it's been differing degrees of success of mummification. And there are people of different ages, and there are some babies, and there are women. It's, it's a bizarre thing. And when I went, it was made worse by the fact that the dust from the centuries caused me to have a violent uh, allergy reaction. So I had to go around the whole thing sneezing, <laughs> despite the notices telling you to behave respectfully and, you know, within this catacomb because it was a, you know, a burial place. But that is very bizarre. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't particularly want to go back. I don't know that everybody would like going in there, but it's certainly, it's certainly different. <laughs> there you have it, strange old Istanbul. 
Just to remind you, Pat is the author of Following Miss Bell, Travels Around Turkey in the Footsteps of Gertrude Bell. And it's available now, links in the description. Thanks again to Pat for some brilliant picks. As I'm a rubbish interviewer, I forgot to get specifics from her on a few things that I've now followed up. So, when it comes to trying Kokorich, the sheep intestines, she recommended a place called Aussies. For the underground cities in Cappadocia, she recommends visiting the less crowded Ozkanak. And for the simulated whipping, you'll want to be in Ashura Square in July. All this info and more is up on strangeoldworld.com, along with a map. Finally, here's my own strange Istanbul site, the Tombili statue. As anyone who's been to Istanbul will know, street cats rule this city. And in the mid-2010s, one of them became a local celeb, and then a meme. This was Tom Beely, a chubby tabby who'd lean on steps like she was propping up the bar in a swanky cocktail joint. When she died in 2016, they made a statue of her, which you'll find in Kadakai on the Anatolian side of town. As far as I know, it's the only meme-based sculpture anywhere in the world, although I'm sure someone's carving a sad Keanu as we speak. Okay, that's your lot for today. I'll see you next time on Strange Old World. The music is by William King and this was a Junior Productions production.